Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Um, okay, so I'm here to give this introduction and I'm, I just want to say thank you for coming from far away and I'm so happy that you're here. Um, this is actually the largest number of people I've ever seen in the Paratol, so um, I'm glad that you're all here too. And um, it's really gratifying to see you all here for this event. Um, I'm going to, you know, do the thing I usually do, which is like read bios and say an introduction. But I also want to, if you don't mind, Fred, read one of your poems. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, this is in the field trio. Bitch rent is dysfunctional Abdul talking loud. Long neurotic styles, quarks, pre-career is color confinement, driving around in tanks, a big ass head in charge of included muddle. But you a jaguar and remain the whole of it. I miss your parties. They were hard for me to be afloat there and remade for talking loud because all that profile sound the same, gloss, but curled up with a little tremolo when I walk. The hard rock quiver of theory is on it, and the setup, Joe, is poetic waxing, hushed in the ear of the informal organ, up against the organizer's tough-ass love. The unexplainable is everything, and you can't turn to it because it's always leaving. It lives on as a shock to the system, even though it lives on as a shock to the system, even though the main thing is cool in the stream, hid below a hand-drawn sign for the other fella as if you could compute something and fill up on the air between, step by step, with joy and L, who is the sound. Living double is like seeing double, edge indebted, octeted, linden berettid, little drummer, little drummer, little ghetto in the combed out process of the new organic sun, the repossession of South Parkway in the open. Here she comes, stepping fast, 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 black on black and black's black ass consent. Her tongue is the main frame, it's the next thing, the abstract first name. Her village is the main thing, her cathedral where the regal is, often the X frame by where the real is, Mr. Anderson. So, um, Stefano Harney teaches in Singapore at Singapore Management University. He's one of the artistic directors for the upcoming Bergen Assembly Triennial in Norway in 2016. He's founder with Tonika Seely of the Art and Education Collective Ground Provisions and with Emma Dowling of the Organizational Anti-Consultancy in Measure. Fred Moten is the author of In the Break, The Aesthetics of the Black Radical Tradition, Houston's Tavern, B. Jenkins, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, uh, the Field Trio and Little Edges. He lives in Los Angeles and teaches at the University of California, Riverside. Join the Poetry Project. <laughs> it's possible to get cold to the reason of and for this work, and it's painful and pitiful to catch yourself being cold to it. Maybe you get cold to it because the labor is long and lonely and the money's bad, and you suspect that what they tell you is true that only fools engage in exhausting foolishness that does not pay. We cower under the supposed social and political insufficiency of our work 
and we attack the ones with bad politics, the poorly socialized with no mercy. Stefano Harney and Steve Moten say in Politics Surrounded, we say rightly, if our critical eyes are sharp enough, that it's evil and uncool to have a place in the sun in the dirty thinness of this atmosphere, that the house the sheriff is building is in the heart of a fallout zone. I've asked so many times what the reason is for this work, and there's no better way to say it. The reason of it says what's evil and what's uncool. You want desperately to avoid being the sheriff in the radioactive house because how do you know if you're the sheriff for real? I have a terrible memory, but I remember this. We start with the decision not to be governed, not like this and not by them. The example of Stefano Harney and Fred Moten's work together is so different from what's commonly known as collaboration. It doesn't have anything to do with multiplying the powers of the intellect just for the sake of doing that, just for the sake of complexity or nuance that might naturally come from checking oneself. The rhetoric they're inventing and exploring together is beyond extra dialectical. They make a gorgeous web with some terrible concepts. The critical attitude of their writings shows deep reverence for writing in impossible ways, for being impossibly friendly with difference, for listening. Critique is not the same as attack. Critique has to go under the banner of some kind of care for the critical posture itself, which is a posture of absolute refusal to go on, but not with that on your chest, not like that. I'm talking about humility and skepticism and how these find each other in a magical deconstruction of the cynical. They say, to have been shipped is to have been moved by others with others. It is to feel at home with the homeless, at ease with the homeless, at ease with the fugitive, at peace with the pursued, at rest with the ones who consent not to be one. You have to have a feel for somebody else. Please welcome Stefano Harney and Fred Moten to the Poetry Project. Thank you, everyone. I, I feel a bit overwhelmed by your, um, your your kind presence tonight and your reception. What, what we're going to do is we're going to read from some new work to start with. Um, I'm going to read a section, and Fred's going to read a section. Um, it's, uh, somehow these sections are sort of written by each other. Um, when Fred and I work together, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to lose ourselves uh, in the writing. And... Uh, I think that what we're trying to do here by reading these two pieces is, uh, is just to continue that process in your presence. Um, so I want to thank you ahead of time for allowing us to do that. Um, I'm going to read a section called Mike the Revelator, um, and it should only be about 10 minutes. When we're done with this part, then, of course, we want to kind of open up and talk with you about the undercommons or about this new work depending on uh, your preference. Can you hear me okay, like this? Yeah, okay. Um, both of these sections are sort of inspired in part by uh, photographs. Um, and uh, 
at a certain point in this presentation, I'll, I'll show one of the photographs, and then I, I think you're going to show one in your, your part as well. Okay. Mike the Revelator. Uh, it starts with a, um, a little epigram, what our old, uh, our old teacher, uh, Seamus Heaney, used to call a little hook shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mike the Revelator. Daughter of Zion, Judah the Lion, he redeemeth and bought us with his blood. John the Revelator, great advocator, gets him on the Battle of Zion. And that's from, as you probably know, Blind Willie Johnson. In the film, Mikey Smith is jaywalking through the language. It's 1982, the beginning of logistical capitalism. The assembly line is snaking out of the factory and into his mouth, and he can't believe it. But Mikey's not going to work for language. Mikey comes from the property. He's been there before. He's going to undo language his way. With the rise of logistical capitalism, it's not the product that's never finished, but the production line. And not the production line, but its improvement. In logistical capitalism, it's the continuous improvement of the production line that never finishes, that's never done, that's undone continuously. The sociologists thought these were networks. The political scientists called it globalization. The business professor pseudonamed it the business process reengineering. Mikey knew better. Mikey veers back across the street to the poet Louise Bennett. He talks about how she inspired him. And we can see her in a clip, wrong and rights with her words, an advocator of an undone language, open to respecting what you like and liking what you respect. Now her words are everywhere like whispers from a cotton tree, but they have to be because logistics, which is to say total access, is everywhere again. But not just logistics. The capitalist science of logistics can be represented by a simple formula, movement plus access. But logistical capitalism subjects that formula to an algorithm and therefore becomes total movement plus total access. Logistical capitalism seeks the total access to your language, total translation, total transparency, total value from your words, and then more. At Queen Mary, before the counterinsurgency, we called this post-colonial capitalism. How does it feel to be a problem in someone else's supply chain? What else is a colonial regime but the imposition of, a psychopathic, of, of psychopathic protocols of total access to bodies and land in the service of what today is called supply chain management? somebody else's logistics operation. And this logistical capitalism, this post-colonial capitalism, will use the historical value of words, the stored value, the stored value to press its point. But Mikey would not speak that way. He saw what was coming by misremembering what had come to pass. Mikey J. walked through his audience as they listened the wrong way across his words. Mikey put his hands up to fight and surrendered to us. He fought and by fighting to surrender to what Jackie Alexander called our collectivized self-possession, to our hapticality, which is at the same time our collective dispossession. Because a revelator defends our partiality, our incompleteness, our hands dispossessed to hold each other up in the Battle of Zion. Mikey was a revelator in the Battle of Zion. Mikey the revelator, sabotaging a line of woods. Mikey Smith is talking to C.L.R. James on a bed in Brixton in an unsettled room. Standing to the side in, in the room is another revelator, Linton Queasy Johnson. You have to move across the language because the language is moving the line through you. The line is moving now, the assembly line, the flow line, the high line, and that means you. 
You move into work like you always did, but now you work as you move. James is telling me he used to love Woodsworth and still does. But it was only when he got back to the Caribbean that he realized what was missing in his poetry. James is talking about language as domination, but Mikey's already having to deal with language as forced improvement in production, as production. Mikey's working on a new logisticality, and James is giving him some coordinates. He's not working on improving the English language. He's working on disproving it. Mikey is deregulating the English language in Me Can't Believe It, and he's not worried about being incomplete. He's jaywalking through the Queen's English. He's instituting a language system. It's a sound system right across Del Nesso. He's walking across to see it now on the gully side, Mike the Rebelator. He said, those that have been restless a full time, them go get some rest. But there's no rest with access. This is the early moment of logistical capitalism with James on the bed, aged from industrial capitalism and all that federal capitalism sedimented underneath them in that London like hard red earth. In logistical capitalism, the assembly line moves because we move it. We move and we move to assemble. To move wrong or not to move is now long, no longer just an obstruction to logistics, but a sabotage of the assembly line, a subversion of logistical capitalism. To move wrong is to deny access to capital. To move wrong not to move is to have your own thing. The jaywalker is no longer just a rube in the way of logistics, a country bookie in traffic, but a saboteur, a terrorist, a demon. Jaywalkers do not sabotage by exodus or occupation as once a maroon might have or a striking minor or a ghost dancer. Jaywalkers disturb the production line, the work of the line, the assembly line, the flow line by demanding inequality of access for all. They stand around and they say, this stops today. But the line don't stop to catch your breath. This is sabotage and this is punishable by death. Jaywalking is assembly for itself and you can't stand there walk there, assemble that way, institute each other. Total value, total value and its violence not only never went away, but as Denise Ferrer de Silva says, they are the foundation of the present as time, the condition of time, of the world as a time-space logic, founded on the first horrible logistics for sale, the first mass movement of total access. Now continuous improvement drives us towards total value, makes all work incomplete makes us move to produce, compels us to assemble. We are liberated from work in order to work. We are invited into our right to assemble, our right to free speech, our right to individuality in order that we might improve the production line running through our liberal dreams. Freedom through work was never the slave's cry. But here it's all around us today. Continuous improvement is the metric of uplift. Those who won't improve won't assemble right. Those who do the same thing again, those who revise, those who tell the joke you've already heard, cook the food you've had, take the walk you've walked, plan to stay, plan to stay a black motherfucker, those are the ones holding everybody back now. Those are the ones fucking up the production line that could improve all of us. They like being incomplete. They like being incomplete and incompleting each other. They have to be deinstitutionalized for their own good. For these people, incompleteness is a dependency, a bad habit. They're partial, patchy, sketchy. They're in self-sufficient. Freire thought our incompleteness is what gave us hope. It was our incompleteness that inclines us toward each other. For Freire, the more we think of ourselves as complete, finished, whole, individual, 
the more we cannot love or be loved. It's too much to say, is it too much to say that for Freire, love was collective self-defense, the way to survive as incomplete? This seems important now when our incompleteness is something we are invited and then compelled to address, told to be impatient with it, embarrassed by it. We need to be intact. We're told to raise our buzz. But for Freire, love perhaps meant, more than anything else, the mutual defense of the fragmental, the partial, the unassembled. This section's called The Consultant. Consultant's not here to provide solutions, innovation, or even advice. The consultant exists to demonstrate access in the era of logistics. The consultant is not an ideologue. Ideology operates here for the consultant himself. He is demonstrably the only one who believes his bullshit, but fortunately for him, this is not the point, not his point. The consultant enacts the first moment of access in the process of undoing the production line in any organization, public or private. The consultant literally accesses these workplaces, demonstrating their openness by showing up in their midst. Nothing she says or does is as important as this demonstration of access. Except what the consultant introduces into the body of this previously closed, completed, finished organization. That's the other thing that's important, the algorithm of work. The consultant is the bearer of the algorithm of work. And that algorithm undoes, incompletes, and reopens. It accesses what was thought to be closed, finished, private, or sufficient. It's not the product or even the organization that interests the algorithm of work. It's the production line. The algorithm work is itself a demonstration within a demonstration. After access comes improvement, or in other words, the demand for more access. As the introduction of the consultant inside the organization demonstrates access, so the introduction of the algorithm demonstrates improvement. The algorithm is the machine that improves itself, that seeks only to improve itself. It's the only machine that can make new machines. Its work it works on the opposite principle of the only other entity that can make machines and improve itself, the human entity. The human makes machines because it does not want to improve. But the algorithm, machines came from before the algorithm, machines came from strikes, from resistance, from sabotage. Machines made from algorithms do not wait for the class struggle. The algorithm that works subjects every labor process on the production line to undoing, disassembly, and incompletion in order to demand it be completed better, assembled better, done better. It leaves behind not an improved organization, but a metric to ensure the organization will never be satisfied again. The metric measures everything against its last instance, ensuring the last instance never comes. The metric demands more access, more measurement of access, more movement, more assembly, more measurement of the last instance. The consultant is still talking, but it doesn't matter now what he says. The algorithm of work has arrived. Algorithmic surplus has arrived. If the settler could not have heard the screams of if the settler could not be heard over the screams of primitive accumulation, and the citizen could not be heard over the noise of the machines, the consultant cannot be heard over the sound of his own voice, the business drone of contemporary media, education, leisure. Mikey heard this noise and he walked the other way, another way, so the algorithm could not pass through, so we could pass him along. Name Chandler reminds us of a term W.B. Du Bois invented and employed, democratic despotism. When, it cannot, when the consultant cannot demonstrate access and therefore the algorithm cannot demonstrate improvement, 
The consultant calls for policy as wants and still the citizen calls for a headed patriarchal nationalism or the settler for racist manifest destiny. Policy is past all that, even though all that's not past. It comes in to diagnose what's wrong with those people, what's wrong with those people in Detroit who want water, in British Columbia who want land, in Manila who want homes. Policy says there's something wrong with these people, and that's why the consultant can't get access. But it is the other way around because the consultant is desired, denied access because uh, <coughs> excuse me. But it is the other way around because the consultant is denied access. Policy must be called. Self-defense becomes the disease. Maybe governance can help, which is to say, maybe those practicing self-defense may be willing to self-diagnose. But one way or the other, policy will prescribe, and we might say policy gets posed, posed as democracy, as democratic despotism. Everyone's given a chance to say there's something wrong with those people over there. Democratic despotism, where the wrong, <clears throat> where the wrong make policy possible. But the thing is, the consultant's not wrong. The algorithm of work is not malfunctioning. The policy hustler is not misdiagnosing. We are incomplete. Moreover, they got that very idea of incompleteness for us. Another word for incompleteness is study, or more precisely, revision. The consultant gets this revision from us, from study, from our sumptuous revisions of each other. Study happens, and it don't stop. In study, the individual eye and the collective eye, to use Hortense Spiller's terms, seek to engage each other consciously and unconsciously. The one revives the other, revises the other, and then again. This is not just about distinguishing improvement as capitalist efficiency. That's too easy to dismiss. It's about improvement itself, the time concept, the moral imperative, the aesthetic judgment, which is to say capitalist improvement found in, in, in and on black flesh. Revision has no end, no connection to improvement, never mind efficiency. So the consultant unfinishes institution but can't access instituted life, can't open black life, queer life, get access to feminist planning around the kitchen table, as Tiziana Terranova calls it can't open it because it's an open secret, can't incomplete what's already incomplete, can't deform what's always informal already. And yet, this in turn leads to the state of emergency that goes under the such names as resilience and preparedness. When democratic despotism fails, despotism in the name of democracy must be imposed. Resilience is the name for the violent destructions of things that won't give, won't return to form, won't bend when access is demanded, won't be flexible, pliable. Resilience is what they do when someone tells them this stops today. They make him resilient. Stopping what you are told to stop and moving along when you're told to move along demonstrates resilience. And maybe we can show that uh, photo and coming to the uh, end. This section's called Hold She. <clears throat> to ask not who's holding you down when you try to jaywalk, but who's holding you up, this is the question of hapticality. The police can't hold someone who's already held. And at the same time, maybe you can only really hold someone who's already held, already instituted. Watching your mother listen to a song, you're instituted. This is the Michael Jackson song my mother turned up to teach me to dance. In a photograph, photograph, they containerize her, but they do not contain her. They bend her because access and logistics strive to be one. 
The more she is captured by the police, the photographer, the viewer, the more she is shipped. The more she is shipped, the more she is held, the more she is handled. They really can't see our hands. And this is demonic to them. They can't see our hands because Mike the Revelator's hands were not up to the cops. They were up to us. Or maybe we should say they were holding us up. All those hands, all those mouths must look demonic to them and queer. It's queer to put yourself in such hands as may come, to be held up by such hands as may reach you. Just, just because there are no rules for our access doesn't mean we don't know what to do. Doesn't mean we don't know how to follow a dance hall queen. She holds she woman around she belly, and in she belly is another revelator. We know where she studies. Thanks. As usual, I just want to, as I've been doing for uh, about 32 years, echo Steve and say how happy uh, I am to be here with all of you and uh, how wonderful it is to, to see you and to thank Simone for bringing us here and for a wonderful introduction, which we could not possibly live up to, but we'll see. I guess mine could be called Mike, Mikey, the Revelator too, but um, but I, instead I call it Michael Brown. How can we survive genocide? We can only address this question by studying how we have survived genocide. In the interest of imagining what exists, there is an image of Michael Brown we must refuse in favor of another image we don't have. One is a lie, the other unavailable. If we refuse to show the image of a lonely body, of the outline of the space that body simultaneously took and left, we do so in order to imagine jurisgenerative black social life walking down the middle of the street. For a minute, but only for a minute, unpoliced, another city gathers, dancing. We know it's there and here and real. We know what we can't have happens all the time. Imagining what exists requires and allows analysis. And I have some <clears throat> epigrams too, I suppose. Um, this is from Essex Hemphill's poem, When My Brother Fell. When my brother fell, I picked up his weapons. I didn't question whether I could aim or be as precise as he. A needle and thread were not among his things I found. This is from Luther Vandross, Power of Love. When we walk down the street, we don't care who we see or who we meet. Don't need to run, don't need to hide, because we got something burning inside. We've got love, power. It's the greatest power of them all. We've got love, power. And together, we can't fall. And this is from uh, a, a 
Polynesian artist named Vernon Aki from a really interesting film he made called White Fella Normal. He says, at times this land will shake your understanding of the world and confusion will eat away at your sense of humanity, but at least you will feel normal. These passages bear an analytic of the lost and found, of fallenness and ascension that comes burning to mind in and as the name of Michael Brown. First, that there is a social erotics of the lost and found in fallenness's refusal of standing. We fall so we can fall again, which is what ascension really means to us. To fall is to lose one's place, to lose the place that makes one, to relinquish the locus of being, which is to say of being single. This radical homelessness, its kinetic indigeneity, its irreducible queerness is the essence of blackness. This refusal to take place is given in what it is to occur. Michael Brown is the latest name of the ongoing event of resistance to and resistance before socio-ecological disaster. Modernity's constitution in the transatlantic slave trade, settler colonialism and capital's emergence in and with the state is the sociological disaster. Michael Brown gives us occasion once again to consider what it is to endure the disaster, to survive in genocide, to navigate unmappable differences as a range of localities that, in the end, either all the way to the end or as our ongoing refusal of beginnings and ends, will always refuse to have been taken. The fall is anacatastrophic anacat refusal of the case and therefore of the world which is the Earth's capture insofar as it was always a picture frozen and extracted from, Im from imaginal movement. At stake is the power of love, which is given in walking down the street as defiance to the racial capitalist settler colonial state and its seizures, especially its seizure of the capacity to make and break law. Against the grain of the state's monopolization of ceremony, Ceremonies are small and profligate. If they weren't everywhere and all the time, we'd be dead. The ruins, which are small rituals, aren't absent but surreptitious, a range of songful scarring when people give a sign, shake a hand. But what if together we can fall because we're fallen, because we need to fall again to continue in our common fallenness, remembering that falling is in opposition to rising? their combination given in lingering as the giving of pause, recess, vestibular remain, custodial remand, hold, holding in the interest of rub, daps reflex and reflection of maternal touch, a maternal ecology of laid hands, of being handed, handled, handed down, nurtures natural dispersion, its endless refusal of standing. Hemphill emphatically announces the sociality that Luther shelters, fallen, risen, mournful survival. When black men die, it's usually because we love each other, whether we run or fight or surrender. Consider Michael Brown's generative occurrence and recurrence as refusal of the case, as refusal of standing. You can do this, but only if you wish to insert yourself. And now I must abuse a phrase of Aki's, into black worldlessness, our homelessness, our selflessness, 
none of which are or can be ours. The state can't live with us and it can't live without us. Its violence is a reaction to that condition. The state is nothing other than a war against its own condition. The state is at war against its own resources in violent reaction to its own condition of impossibility, which is life itself, which is the earth itself, which blackness doesn't so much stand in for as name, as a name among others that is not just, any, just, that is not just another name among others. That we survive is beauty and testament. It is neither to be dismissed nor overlooked nor devalued by or within whatever ascription of value. That we survive is invaluable. It is at the same time insufficient. We have to recognize that a state, the racial capitalist settler colonial state of war, has long existed. Its brutalities and militarizations, its regulative mundanities are continually updated and revised, but they're not new. If anything, we need to think more strategically about our own innovations, recognizing that the state of war is a reactive state, a machine for regulating and capitalizing upon our innovations and for survival. That's why what's most disturbing about Michael Brown, a.k.a. Eric Garner, a.k.a. Renisha McBride, a.k.a. Trayvon Martin, a.k.a. Eleanor Bumpers, a.k.a. Emmett Till, a.k.a. an endless streams of, of names and absent names, is our reaction to him, our misunderstanding of him, and the sources of that misunderstanding that manifest and reify a desire for standing, for stasis within the state war machine, which, contrary to popular belief, doesn't confer citizenship upon its subjects at birth, but rather at death, which is the proper name for entrance into its properly political confines. The prosecution of Michael Brown, which is the proper technical name for the grand jury investigation of Darren Wilson, the drone, is what our day in court looks like and always has. The prone, exposed, unburied body, the body that is given in death, its status as body precisely through and by way of the withholding of fleshly ceremony is what political standing looks like. That's the form it takes and keeps. This is a Sophoclean formulation. The law of the state is what Ida B. Wells rightly calls lynch law, and we extend it in our appeals to it. We need to stop worrying so much about how it kills, regulates, and accumulates us, and worry more about how we kill, deregulate, and disperse it. We have to love and revere our survival, which is in our resistance. We have to love our refusal of what has been refused. But insofar as this refusal has begun to stand, Insofar as it has begun to seek standing, it stands in need of renewal now, even as, the re even as the sources and conditions of that renewal become more and more obscure, even um, more and more entangled with the regulatory apparatuses that are deployed in order to suppress them. At moments like this, we have to tell the truth with a kind of viciousness and even a kind of cruelty. Black lives don't matter which is an empirical statement not only about black lives in this state of war, but also about lives. This is to say that lives don't matter, nor should they. It's the metaphysics of the individual life and all its immateriality that's got us in this situation in the first place. Michael Brown lived and moved within a deep and evolving understanding of this. This is a quote from uh, something he had placed on a Facebook account. 
if I leave this earth today, at least you'll know I care about others more than I cared about my damn self. But we have to consider how and what it means that his testament is transformed into an expression of mourning and outrage such as this upon the non-occasion of the non-indictment. Go on, call me demon, but I will love my damn self. I suffer with, but also through this expression of our suffering. For this expression of our disavowal of the demonic, however brutally the police and or the police in their soullessness ascribe it to or inscribe it upon us, is erstwhile respectability's voluntary laying down of arms. It's effective demobilization of jurisgenerative force. Meanwhile, Michael Brown is like another fall and rise through man, come and gone as eruption and rupture to remind us not that black lives matter, but that black life matters, that the absolute and undeniable blackness of life matters. The innovation of our survival is given in embrace of this demonic, richly internally differentiated choreography. It's lumpen improvisation of contact, which is obscured when class struggle in black studies threatens to suppress black study as class struggle. How much has black studies as a bourgeois institutionalization of black study determined the way we understand and fight the state of war within which we try to live? How has it determined how we understand the complex non-singularity that we now know as Michael Brown? It would be wrong to say that Michael Brown has become, in death, more than himself. He already was that, as he said himself, in echo of so much more than himself. He was already more than that in being less than that, in being the least of these. To reduce Michael Brown to a cipher for our unfulfilled desire to be more than that, for our serially unachieved and constitutionally achievable citizenship, is to do a kind of counter-revolutionary violence. It is to partake in the ghoulish, vampiric consumption of his body, of the body that became his, though it did not become him, in death, in the reductive stasis to which his flesh was subjected. Michael Brown's flesh is our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh of flames. Teddy Harris, if you would. On August 9th, like every other day, like any other day, black life and its irreducible sociality having consented not to be single, got caught walking with jurisgenerative fecundity down the middle of the street. Michael Brown and his boys, black life breaking and making law against and underneath the state surrounding it. They had foregone the melancholic appeal to which we now reduce them for citizenship and subjectivity and humanness. That they had done so is the source of Darren Wilson's genocidal instrumentalization in the state's defense. They were in a state of war, and they knew it. Moreover, they were warriors in insurgent, if imperfect, beauty. What's left for us to consider is the difference between the way of Michael Brown's dance, his fall and rise, the way they refuse to take place when he takes to the streets, the way Ferguson takes to the streets, and the way we seek to take but don't seem to take to the streets. In protest, as mere petitioners, fruitlessly seeking energy in the pitiful, minimal, temporary shutdown of this or that freeway, as if mere occupation was something other than or something other than retrenchment in reverse of the demand for recognition that actually constitutes business as usual. Rather than dissipate our preoccupation with how we live and breathe, we need to defend our ways and our persistent practice of them. 
It's not about taking the streets. It's about how and about what we should take to the streets. What would it be and what would it mean for us jurisgeneratively to take to the streets, to live in the streets, to gather together another city right here, right now? Meanwhile, against the dead citizenship that was imposed upon him, the body the state tried to make him be, and in lieu of the images we refuse and can't have, here is an image of our imagination. This is Michael Brown, his descent, his ascension, his ceremony, his flesh, his animation in and of the maternal ecology. Michael Brown's innovation as contact in improvisation. Contact improvisation is how we survive genocide. We didn't get here by ourselves. Black takes like black took. We were already beside ourselves, evidently. Eventually, we were upside ourselves in this wound scar. This womb-like scarring open scream tuned open. Sister, can you move my form? Took, had, give. Because he wasn't by himself, he's gone in us. How we got over that we didn't get here is wanting more than that in the way we carry ourselves. How we carry over ourselves until we're gone in the remainder. Here, not here. Bought, unbought. We brought ourselves with us so we could give ourselves away. That's more than they can take away, even when it's more than we can take. So that's, that's all we have. <laughs> no, uh, well, we thought that'd probably be enough, and it maybe it would be nice to maybe talk a little bit with you um, about um, some, some of maybe why you came out tonight or why we're here together. So I was interested in the relationship between the lo corporate logistics that you spoke about and the and the, its effect on the on the communities that uh, that Fred wrote about.
work starts in some ways from this logistics of, of shipping uh, at the outset of the of, uh, um, of the Atlantic Slave Trade. So it's the first big incredible example of commercial logistics and the shape of it that we really have to do. Use my Well, our work remarks on the way that the first great horrible uh, example of commercial logistics um, is the African slave trade, the, um, and that marks that marks black bodies as the the the, the opening play in in the in the question of access. Um, what I'm interested in is as we returned, as we move to this very logistical uh, form of accumulation today, what does it mean to have been marked as the original one who gives complete access, the original bodies that comp give complete access at a moment when access is being more generally demanded in all different kinds of ways? So, um, so the link for me is simply that, that there's a, there's a, demand of access of movement on all of us uh, that's prefigured um, uh, in the in the demand made of uh, of black bodies for total access in slavery and at the same token at the same time you know there's a there's there's the problem that Fred was referring to when he was reading the section on the state of like you know the the, per, the persistent inability to get that total access and and Black life still stands both for that total access and the persistence and inability of the state and capital to to gain that access and to to sustain it, except um, you know at the price of death because total access it basically would kill you um, and does. Uh, so that's uh, that's where I see the connection of the two. I don't know if Fred had a want to add anything to that. Um, no, nah, not too much, really. Um, although something just something evil just flashed across my mind. Um, I guess I shouldn't say it, but I but I'm gonna say it anyway. Uh, Y'all know this? I can't think of his name, but the <laughs> the 73 year old insurance executive who decided that in semi-retirement he would have some fun by doing ride-arounds with the Tulsa police and just shot this man because he thought his... <laughs> it's so stupid you can't even say it, right? He thought his, he thought his gun was a taser or he thought his taser was a gun, you know. Um, that, 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 that kind of really cool way in which by donating money he was allowed to to essentially deputize himself. Um, it, that goes back to the patty rollers, right? Um, that, that, that sort of, uh, that, that, that way in which a certain kind of particularly, you know, sort of white male subjectivity 
which is completely formulated by way of slave ownership, even if that particular subject no longer doesn't own a slave. And that foundation of white male subjectivity in slave ownership, which persists even after the, the particular individual ownership of a slave is over, we still live within that regime. But, but I was just thinking that that kind of sense of what it means to deputize oneself, that, that, that particular modality of deputizing, can take the form, on the one hand, of, you know, riding around with the police and shooting somebody. And it could also take the form of, like, you know, reading the autopsy in front of a bunch of people as if that shit was some fucking poetry. Um, anyway, that was the evil thought I had. <laughs> question about um, the appearance of the word consultant in, in your piece, which, um, I mean, it it's a general question about your compositional process, which is, in some ways, how do you do it, but also, um, you know, like, really, how do, you, how do you compose together, but also, what concepts or words sort of become present enough to both of you that they then appear in in the pieces because, you know, the consultant is, you know, a fairly, you know, esoteric figure outside of a certain kind of capital practice, right? Like the practice of, you know, a very, you know, a relatively high level capitalistic practice, right? Where you have like a large firm, which is capable, I mean, the McKinsey's of the world, like not all of us deal with that. So I'm just curious about like how a word like consultant becomes, you know, how does it get into the mix with, you know, what I think of as like a, a, an accumulating vocabulary that you are working with? Um, well, in answer to your question of how we write together, we use a consultant. <laughs> Um, you're right. I mean, uh, I think one of the interests we have, uh, I mean, my, of course, a consultant is a very, is a specialized figure to some extent. But one of the interests I think we have is in what might be made by, by manipulating a, a term like that to see what might be, amongst other things, it's more general applicability. Because while I agree with you that uh, those who call themselves consultants um, are still relatively few, even if their their baleful influence is, is felt fairly widely. But I think we're also pausing the questions of how that function of the consultant might be spreading uh, in the same way that we were trying to think about um, how those who make policy on the spot, you know, uh, seem to be spreading through society. And in the same way, as Fred was suggesting with this, um, this deputized... Uh, Fellow, you know, um, the way in which this is connected to a, a general form of, you know, patty rolling, a general form of clan behavior that, um, you know, that is, as Angela uh, 
Metropolis would say, part of the democratization of sovereignty. So, um, so I think it's maybe just another example of us seeing what we can do with that term and what we can do with that, where we, we see as its kind of um, function or, or anti-function, because I, what interests me about the consultant, I don't know, uh, I don't know if, if Fred shares this, because this isn't something we've talked about. I, I'm, in, I'm always interested in just absolutely how unimportant it is what they say. Um, you know, in the, in the process of what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, for me that, that has something, you know, in that sense they, they, they come as close as anybody, you know, any body could to, to representing a certain kind of logic um, uh, that's at work right now. Uh, so I, I'm sorry to give the flippant answer about how we work together, so maybe I'll turn that part over to Fred and, and he, can, uh, he can address that. But the consultant, I think, represents for us just a chance to try to see if we can hack squat that that term a little to see where we might find some more generalized effects um, and some something that's changing, something that's happening that um, has in the end very much to do with these questions of access and the violence that accompanies uh, this kind of access. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, well, one way to think about the term, the consultant, is that it's a way of as Steve was saying, embodying a, a kind of this sort of logic that goes with self-improvement, you know, um, and, and self-management. Um, and in a way, and, and, and the reason why it's so insidious and at the same time kind of humorous in a way that it doesn't matter what the consultant says is because what matters is, is that the consultant becomes a kind of beacon, you know, um, toward which this tendency, you know, to self-improvement can be, can be turned. Um, and it's important in that respect that it would be like the figure of the consultant, almost like a colossus in some way. Um, and it's interesting, too, because there are certain firms that almost, in a way, in that same way, embody the figure of the consultant, like McKinsey. And it, maybe like 20, 35, 25 years ago, it was Bain. You know the aptly named Bain Consulting Group. You know so, um, but 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 then there's this other part about it where you do sort of feel like you want to redeem or, or or excavate something from from that term or from the the way in which that that term gets sort of hypothesized. Like there's something about what it is to consult, or there's something about what another kind of consultation might be, what, what it might mean to, for us to, to counsel together or to, to ground together, as, as Walter Rodney would say, that that, that, that that still remains of interest, it seems to me. Um, but, you know, but, but the figure, you know, the impossible imaginary figure of the consultant is something that we would want to, you know, step on. And as far as working together, um, well, it's, I mean, we just hang out together as much as we can. Um, and, I, and there's a way in which, you know, I mean, we, 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 we keep picking up terms from one another, I think. Um, but, it's, but it's unclear who picked up the term first. You know, 
Um, like I used to be able to say, oh, I know that Steve came up, you know, now I don't remember anymore now which where it came from in a way. Um, and they get turned, picked up and picked up and handed back and pushed. And we, we were on the train today. We were really pushing this one term. It's going to be fun to work on it. Um, stranded. We, you know, we talked about stranded for like two hours. So we'll see what comes goes to that. Yeah, man, the rest of the people were, they're not happy. Well, in my mind, I'm just running through a whole range of possible permutations of the phrase, figure it out, work it out, get out, get out of it. Um, can we figure our way out of it? Um, how will we figure it out? How can we work it out? Bob Marley said that. Um, we can work it out. <laughs> uh, try to see things my way. But um, I think um, I guess maybe what what we've been what we've been kind of working through, or what we've been the assumption that we've been acting on is that like a big text for both of us that I already have mentioned and referred to is Walter Rodney, the grounding, the groundings with, with my brothers. And I guess I feel like there's this thing where you kind of figure, okay, let's get together to see how we can figure it out. Let's get together to see how we can work it out. Let's get together to see how we can get out of this. And we're interested in the moment at which this kind of weird inkling or transformation might begin to occur in which you realize that what we've been trying to figure out how to get to is how we are when we get together to try to figure it out. Um, that's how come, you know, we try to say it's really important for us. It's more important for us to pay attention to what we do, to how we do than it is to pay attention to what they do and how they do. It's not to say that we ought not formulate as sharp and clear an analysis of how the state and capital operate as we can. It's, but it is to say that a couple things. One, they're not nearly as interesting as we are. So not only is it more important, and the reason that they're not as interesting as we are is because they're not as complicated as we are. And we need to know something about who and what we are. We need to be able to imagine what, what exists in a way that is sort of more intense, I think, than the need to imagine what doesn't exist. 
you know. So, so that's what I mean. I think what I'm trying to say is, is I'm not at all trying to. There's a way in which you could kind of say, well, you, and I'm not saying you were asking this at all. I mean, I don't. But well, you think we can just figure it out without having to go do something? And I'm saying, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying. When we get to figure, when we get together to figure it out, we are doing something. Now the question is, how do we extend that? How do we defend it? How do we protect it? Right? How do we value, not value it, but how do we understand what that is? Okay. Because um, my my sense of it is that, you know, whatever capital and the state are most violent in their in their in, the, in these modalities in which acquisition and extermination of those basically amount to the same thing, that these institutions are most violent against us when we're trying to figure it out. They, they, they just don't seem to like it very much when we just get together. Um, you know, which means, and, they, and at the same time that they don't like it, they love it. They want to eat it. They want to steal it and keep it and lock it up and sell it and cut it up into pieces and replicate. So, like I said, they can't live with it. They can't live without it. Okay. Um, we can live with it. We can't live without it. So, um, I don't know if that answered you. I'm just dancing around the question, I suppose. Uh, we were doing this thing day before yes was it day day before shit off <laughs> day before yesterday and um, this very interesting um, scholar named uh, Kimberly Brown she's got a I don't know where she I think she teaches at Northeastern um, but she she's been working on she's studying um, she's studying uh She's writing a book now. Basically, the way she described it is she's interested in why it is that there are no images of white death on the cover of the New York, on the front page of the New York Times in 1994. Right? But in other words, why is it that there are these 
you know, a, a proliferation of images of black death, you know, maybe like what AJ would call my black death, you know, proliferation of these images, but never um, images of, of, of a kind of dead white body on the cover. And, and she, she found this amazing, um, not found, but it's this amazing photo, photograph that, uh, I th I'm forgetting his name, Peter, Peter Mungabani. Danny, you know him. This great South African photographer is that famous uh, photograph he made in, in Soweto during the Soweto uprising of 1980 or 1976, and it's kind of amazing photograph in which you've got like nine black people, kind of. It's it, the photograph actually. There's a kind of depth or a kind of perspective that the photograph achieves even though it's a kind of candid, improvised shot, it's really amazing. So that there's a kind of circle, a circle of black people that kind of encircle, not just, well, and, 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 and the circle of black people includes a dead black body covered over, right? But within that circle, there's this empty space. And she calls that empty space I'm, I, I wish I could, I hope I'm not messing her stuff up, but she, the term she uses is the semper vivum, which, which for her means the sort of life forever, the forever aliveness of whiteness, but which shows up in this space as an absence, right? And it's, it's really, and I guess what I'm trying to get at is maybe there's a way in which there's a kind of Barthian kind of thing she's doing there where you could say that the studium, I mean, I'm sorry, the punctum, of this photograph is that empty space, okay? But if, but, but, but of course, that empty space only shows up, okay, not so much in relation to the image of the covered dead black body, but in relation to the entire richness of the black social life, which includes that body. And let's say that that black social life is the studio. That would be the foundations of me, maybe, and maybe of us saying something like, well, we're, if when it comes to photography, we're interested in the studium and not the punctum. Um, you know, and, and, and there's a, and that's, well, anyway. work the, the 
Yeah, it's kind of what I was going to say, but um, I've been trying to think about the difference between our our incompleteness and our revision in study, and some of the things that I I do end up having to pay attention to that's going on in the business world or the corporate world. Whereas I was suggesting in the in the part that I read that. <clears throat> Capital seems to have caught on to some notion of revision as a way to to, to speed up the line. Um, and uh, the word for this, it kind of comes into 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 the English-speaking world in the 70s and 80s, is continuous improvement. Um, in Japanese, it's it's, uh, it's kaizen. Um, uh, and with it, the whole myth comes of... Uh, you all may not be interested in this, so I'll stop in a second. But, you know, it comes. there's this whole myth that we sent over these folks to Japan after World War II who started up Japanese industry by using these new techniques. And what would these techniques come to be? Well, they would be this thing of con continuous improvement. It's, it's a complete lie. Th those guys did go over from our, our kind of growing business schools. They worked there for four or five years. Nothing happened with Japanese industry in those first four or five years. Then finally, the U.S. did, you know, it took its tried and true uh, methods of how you jumpstart an, uh, an economy. They went around to the rest of the region and just demanded that they only buy Japanese products. Um, and then the Japanese economy, you know, took off. But the myth was that it was because of this change. And why do I bring that up? Because the, the change of continuous improvement is essentially this movement of the speed up into, into our own responsibilities and accountabilities. So the traditional speed up, it was a foreman who moved the line, who, who sped up the line, and we had to react to it. But with continuous improvement, everyone along that line is responsible for trying to make that line go faster all the time. Well, you can obviously recognize that in our work patterns today, the way in which we are not just responsible for passing something along in a logistical fashion. Everything has to keep moving and moving through us through this kind of access. But also, we need to improve it as we pass it along. You can't just send on an email. You have to put in some stupid comment as you send it on, right? And on and on. It, every aspect of our logistical work, of what we sometimes call this, this synaptic labor, of, uh, of a kind of nerve connection labor that we do, you know, it, it ain't just that. We also have to always improve it, which means we're involved all the time in the speed up. You know, we, we're responsible for the speed up in both sense. One is we're supposed to do the speed up, and two is we did it. We're guilty of it uh, in a sense. So, um, so I was trying to think about that and the way that that is now kind of lining up through the consultant with this, this whole notion of opening up the process again to say that it's not done, it's not sufficient, we have to improve it more, we have to, we have to do, it, do it better, and, and thinking about our practices of study together, the ways in which we also insist on not being finished, on, on revision, on, um, on, on not graduating. And I know it's different, you know, but um, you know, I, was, I was worried about how close it was getting. Um, and that's one reason that, that we've kind of we've veered off in that direction. The thing about, I mean, it, one real difference in it, I would say, is that 
when you enter into study together with people and you're, you're working in a direction away, away from finishing all the time into some sort of mutual bad debt that's not going to ever be paid, but you also, you also begin to be able to see other people at study um, the deeper you enter into study. And what may not have appeared as study around you starts to appear. And it seems to me that's, that's what would happen with any community of poets who studied together. Not just that they'd see other poets, but they'd see other forms of study going on around them in all, in all kinds of ways. Um, and that's, you know, that's the pleasure that I take as somebody who works in a university of going into study against the university is to see how study is already happening and it's happening in so many different ways around me. And I don't see it unless I, unless I enter into that, uh, into that process with others and begin to kind of take myself apart enough um, you know, to feel what's, what's going on around me. So maybe that's the, the connection back to the consultant in a way too. I remember I'm thinking now, and I got you know so many friends here tonight, but um the big I think in a lot of ways the and I just sort of realize this now that that one of the ways that the term study began to take on a different kind of weight for me um was under the influence and under the protection of this group that I was allowed to join called the Jazz Study Group that was meeting for a long, has been meeting for 20 years now, more than 20 years. I have friends here tonight from that, Brent Edwards and Danny Dawson. And, and of course, what you realize when you get together with a bunch of other people who really love the music to study the music and to study the social significance of the music is that we were a jazz study group, and what we were studying was jazz as a, as a constant flowering study group, <laughs> right? Like, you know, Miles's quintet was a study group, you know? Um, so, again, as Steve was saying, you become aware already, you know, you become aware of these already existing instances of study, of communal study, and what you realize is that the making of music, the making of poetry, that, that poetics, whether it's a musical poetics or, a, you know what I'm saying, a poetry poetics, um, that, that this, this process and, and, and these protocols of making, right, and of unmaking are irreducibly social. I mean, that's the only way, really, that they happen. And, and so much of the way we think about poetry is kind of this kind of sequestered kind of antisociality. So I was thinking about, you know, that famous, uh, it's kind of great, you know, that great kind of Elizabeth Bishop poem or elegy for Robert Lowell, you know, that line, repeat, 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 revise, revise, revise. She gives that image of this sad, lonely man, right? Um, and I think, you know, there's a way of thinking about poetics as, you know, and, and more intellectual life more generally as the province of the sad and the lonely. But, you know, uh, and, you know, and they, I remember we taught, I mean, I've only taught poetry workshops a couple times, and this was horrible, but they tried, why, how can you do this? How can you, and I was like, well, you know, the first thing y'all need to do is get together and start drinking. I mean, <laughs> the poets I know, 
you know, basically that's what they do. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, so the question is maybe a distinction between modalities of revision, okay? Um, and maybe the modalities are distinguished by an, an opposition or, or a, a, you know, a difference, let's say, between, um, between this kind of entangled collective contact improvisational revision, let's say, on the one hand, and, and that kind of lonely thing on the other. So, and, and so they, well, anyway, so they're taking it, what you take to the streets, you know, um, most importantly, what you take is, your, your, you know, yourselves, you know, in order to, as, you know, to give yourselves away to one another, to, to be, um, dispossessed in, in one another in, in a way, I, I would say. Um, and then the question is like, what, how, how do you stay? You know, what kind of, you know, let's have school in the street. Let's have food in the street. Let's, you know, and at a certain point, it ain't even about them, you know. I mean, only, you know, they think everything is about them, so it doesn't matter anyway. So if what you wanted to do was to get, get, get to get their attention, you already, you know what I'm saying, you already got it, you know, and, 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 and you know. But there's a way in which that commitment to stopping their business as usual has to be checked insofar as it might, in fact, you know, cause us to stop our business as usual, you know, which is, that's all. That's a good question. I got to answer. <laughs> uh, it is a good question, and actually, we've been this last day thinking a lot about uh, how we how we how we deepen our thinking around around debt, and particularly this kind of mutual debt, this bad debt that we go into. Um, not so, maybe not so much to lose. Uh, lose interest, but maybe lose our, our interests um, in, in the service of a more general kind of interest. The other way to think about it is in relationship to some other kind of credit. Um, you know, um, it's, imp it's important to, for us, it's important to, de to, to try to de-link credit and debt, and that's something that came to us, you know, through trying to study in the university. But, but also it w could be interesting to explore another kind of credit you know, a kind of credit that comes from the origins of the word in credo and faith and has to do with the extension of a kind of credit that requires no collateral, that's, that's based on, you know, believing that, you know, when, when you fall, there will be hands um, and there will be hands again. And that, that's a kind of different kind of credit that might go with a kind of bad debt, 
you know, um, the kind of credit you'd be a fool to extend um, would be the kind of credit that, you know, um, might have something to do with the kind of bad debt that you would want to perpetuate. And amidst that, there'd be some kind of thing called interest, but that it, it might be generalized in a certain way um, where you can't be sure it was your interest you brought to the table or that it's your interest that's um, being extended through what happens when, uh, when you study together. Uh, so, so for me, the, the, the possibility of, uh, of a general interest you know, uh, emerges once we have, uh, we have a, a kind of condition of bad debt and of this kind of you know, um, foolhardy uh, credit. I was just thinking of another uh, scholar that we met, you know, earlier this week, um, and and her name is Patricia Lott, and you should write it down. She um, she's at College of William and Mary in Colonial Williamsburg, <laughs> and uh, and she um, she did she did this amazing kind of analysis. She wrote, she wrote read a paper. It's called Slavery and Social Debt. And she did this really interesting analysis of this regime of gradual emancipation that, that was usually associated with the northern states in the antebellum period where they, would, they wanted to abolish slavery, or maybe the better word to put it would be that they wanted, they saw an interest, maybe a general interest in moving from, uh, moving more completely into a wage economy and began to, to set up a, a, a structure or a regime in which um, that, that, that made possible gradual manumission. This would take the form of if you were born into slavery, you were to be freed. If, if you were a man in one state at the age of 25, if you were a woman at the age of 21. And, uh, you know, what we began to think under the influence of Patricia Lott, is that we exist today within a regime of gradual emancipation, right? Um, and gradual emancipation was a structure which was designed to, 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 first of all, protect the property rights of the slave owner. And so what it means is that, you know, we remain, um, one way to put it would be that we remain in debt, that, that what it meant was that you were born to be free, right? You were born on some trajectory toward freedom, but you had to pay it off, right? Um, and that meant that that debt was what creditors would call a good debt, right? It had value, okay? You were going to, because it was going to be paid by, by, as a matter of law, because you had to work until you were 25, right? So this is, this is, this is easily fan financializable debt, right? It can be traded. It could be, you know, it was, it was su sufficiently abstract to be movable in a really intense way. And what's interesting is that it, what she was arguing, what Patricia was arguing, is that insofar as we remain in this condition of gradual emancipation, it gives us a way of understanding the transition from, an e from, from a political economy based on slavery to a political economy based on incarceration. That in fact, that the prisoner, that the black prisoner is still paying off this debt. Literally 
paying his debt to society or paying her debt to society. And question, so here's where the question of interest comes in, right? Because if you're paying a debt to society, are you a member of society, right? Do you have an interest in this debt, you know? Is there a way in which, you know, this other guy was asking the question. I, I didn't. I forget what his name was, but he was sort of saying, "Have we all somehow been roped into a position in which, literally, we we th- this this debt has now become a kind of is is better understood as a kind of equity, right? That we all have somehow bought into, or that many of us have tried to buy into, and 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 I, and this kind of helped illuminate some stuff that we had been thinking about, you know, in the undercommons where what we were trying to do is imagine a kind of a maybe you know a politics or some kind of social insurgency that would emerge from a condition of refusing interest in this right but of course what it would mean to refuse interest in the already existing society is how we study that how we come to understand that is by paying attention to the history of those who have been refused right the right to have interest in this society so, um, and there's a, and it's not just that, but it's like, how do you, it's not just about studying the, the history of the people who have refused interest, but you're studying the people who have refused the interest that they have been refused, right? So, so part of what, you know, and, you know, this is all bound up with what it means to, well, now I'm just blabbing in my mind, I'm thinking about a bunch of different things, including, well, I shouldn't even, but the point is that, 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 that what we were, it produces an interest, an interesting problem, which is how do you imagine, how do you enact this refusal of interest? And at the same time, how do you do so within a kind of project or within a kind of collective sort of work of study, which is very much bound up with just a sense of what it is to be interested in something so maybe we've been very much influenced by our friend Denise De Silva who and I think the, the term that she has come to use two terms that she's come to use that maybe we would want to think of as terms that not necessarily replace interest let's say but but brush up against a lot of what we would mean by that second sense of interest and one term one of those terms is entanglement you know, that we're entangled with one another, you know, um, which would be another way of kind of saying that we're interested in, in one another. Um, and the other word would be affectability. We're, we're affected by one another. We're moved by one another. Um, and this is a way of talking about that thing um, that that we would refer to under the word interest. So... Um, A terrific night. Um, this is a bit of a convoluted question, um, but when I hear the word genocide, I also think so much about the environment and this uh, kind of going unspoken event of the sixth major extinction of all other animal life on this planet, and it ties up so much with um, the disparagement of life in general, and I just wonder how you're picking up environmental themes in your work as you go forward. 
Jim, just um, just kind of thinking about you know um, the as we've both been writing about you know what it is that people call modernity. You know, the last five hundred years, and it's an ecological disaster. You can't. You can't take however, you know, 50 million, 40 million, 60 million people from one continent to another and act like that doesn't have ecological repercussions, right? And when, of course, the entire structure of, of modern political economy is based on that, which is to say that all of the technological and industrial innovations that we associate with modern political economy are based on that, then all of those things which we now think of as harmful to the ecology, we have to understand in relation to the slave trade. We have to understand in relation to the genocidal structures of settler colonialism on the so-called, you know, new world, right? These are, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to separate these things. And to the extent that an analysis of, 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 of ecological disaster doesn't take those things into account, that's the limit, you know, of of, of that analysis. Um, so so that stuff is really important. But it's more. But but there's another element to it too. It seems to me that the third sort of pillar of it is again what what well what Steve was referring to by way of Angela, uh, you know, Mitropoulos when she talks about the democratization of sovereignty. That aspect of modernity is also crucial. The the the, the 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 ideological formulation that you know McPherson talks about as possessive individualism that's part of the ecological disaster um, it's a foundation of it so um, there's a great poet who I know is read here many times who I work I always think about with regard to this Ed Roberson his last one of his latest books is called To See the Earth Before the End of the World. And, and a lot of what it is I think we're trying to talk about is predicated on that desire. Um, because world as a concept, as, a, as an imaged, graspable form is in some ways a It's the conceptual apparatus that allows us to imagine the earth as ownable and possessed rather than to imagine and continually reimagine and revise, revise our capacity to live on the earth, with the earth, as the earth. So, um, so, so we're, 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 you know, in which case you could think about study not only at the level of what people do, but study is something that is just is done on the earth, by the earth, as the earth, right? Um, anyways. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired 
the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.